This is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. Today's episode needs no introduction. COVID-19 has impacted the social, cultural, and economic fabric internationally since early 2020. In Canada, many leaders have been prominent in guiding us through COVID-19. One specific role that has emerged as a new daily presence for many of us is that of the top medical officer in each province or federally. Within PEI, this role is known as the Chief Public Health Officer. To speak about the role of the Chief Public Health Office, the topic of COVID-19 and youth, paid sick days, discrimination, vaccination, and more, is PEI's very own Chief Public Health Officer, Rhodes Scholar, fashion icon, and overall very cool person, it's THE Dr. Heather Morrison. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Morrison, for being with us this afternoon. Our first question for you, very hard one. How are you doing? Hi. Well, it's a, a pleasure to finally be, have a chance to be uh, here with you. And um, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing fine. I think like everyone else in Prince Edward Island, uh, we would like this pandemic to be over as soon as, as possible. And I think we're all tired, um, but at the same time, hopeful, because I think um, we're making steps to uh, opening up the province and reducing public health measures uh, as safely as we can. Mm. Absolutely. And the pandemic has been one of the many ways in which we have learned of the role of the chief public health officer. Really, it's been completely zero to a hundred there. So how would you describe in your own words uh, the role of the chief public health officer, maybe in relation to ministers or the premier? For instance, you know, on what decisions do you have the last word on? Uh, what examples of situations are there where you can only advise on? And are there scenarios where someone can veto the recommendations of this office? Well, I, I think you're right. I think uh, what's happened in the last 15 months has put uh, chief public health officers, not just in PI, but across the country, um, more attention on um, the offices of the chief public health office. Um, so the MPI, the chief public health officer, um, is a medical practitioner and we're appointed under the Public Health Act. Uh, usually, usually a physician who has uh, training in public health and preventative medicine or equivalent kind of training. Um, we have uh, medical expertise in communicable disease, environmental health, population health assessment and surveillance, and health promotion. And as often is the case in Prince Edward Island, um, we also have uh, management responsibilities with staff uh, in, in the office. Um, and public health is about populations and prevention. And so, our role is really to be that independent voice to protect and promote the health uh, of the public. Um, so in, in other words, it's trying to keep people safe from disease and injury and promoting healthy behaviors by helping uh, people make the healthy choice, the easy choice. And, and I think uh, that we've used that expression before. 
Yes. Uh, and when I, I think one of the questions, you know, when do you, what decisions do you make? And I think you're right. We'll be, we're, we've been so associated really with the pandemic mm. that sometimes uh, people forget the other decisions that we may have been used to making. And uh, some of those would be around what vaccines, um, adult and child uh, vaccines that might be publicly funded um, and when they should be made available, but also inspecting and shutting down restaurants that don't meet food safety guidelines, um, maybe policies or legislations uh, that we would be uh, supporting about tobacco and alcohol control, um, health and safety messaging around healthy eating, physical activity, um, and when to issue a health order or a health alert, or, and in this case, uh, the public health state of emergency. So it is a little bit broader than just what people have been thinking about so much is COVID. So we make recommendations regarding public health and, and it, this differs from elected officials, um, the ministers, because they're balancing different priorities. So in addition to health, uh, they're looking at education, economy, uh, um, but so on broader government matters that are more than just public health, we would be uh, providing recommendations and advice regarding public health risk, mm -hmm. and uh, and then and then working with government officials who would be considering this advice along with the the other priorities uh, that they're looking at. So, um, it's uh, and this public health emergency has been a really good example of having uh, to look at the risk to the public, which is really important for everyone in the province and including the government and how do you minimize uh the risk um and also minimize societal disruption at the same time which are really two important goals for uh, for the pandemic uh mm -hmm. response here in pei mm -hmm. well thank you so much for that explanation i know um as what i mentioned in the in the question you know while many of us are, are familiar with you, Dr. Morrison, you know, many of us, including myself, was not very aware of the role of the chief public health office and, you know, how it differed to just the whole, I think, administration of public health on PEI. So I think that explanation really kind of clarifies, not just within the context of COVID, of course, that's the, that's most important right now, but just kind of in general, um, how that works. So thank you for that. One of the key demographics of the population here on PEI and as well, you know, across the world has been um, youth in COVID-19. And according to the OECD uh, recent report, Youth in COVID-19, Response, Recovery and Resilience, youth have been impacted by COVID-19 um, in a really unique way as each of the different demographics of the population have been. Um, but some of the OECD's key policy recommendations um, on integrating youth in decision making is included in collaborating with youth organizations to effectively and quickly communicate information and applying youth in an intergenerational lens in crisis response and recovery measures across public administration. So um, on PEI, how has the CPHO integrated youth into the COVID-19 response? Well, I, I thought that this was an excellent question. Um, you know, I think youth have been an important part of 
our whole COVID-19 response. And I think throughout all the partnerships at different levels of government and civil society and other stakeholders, we really are, uh, want to hear the voice of youth and how do you integrate those priorities into the response. And mm. I mean, one example, I guess, would be early on in the pandemic, school closures were included as part of public health measures and in collaboration with education. Um, but then we, we really learned that youth were less at risk of infection and serious diseases. Um, we also heard from youth and parents that school closures had an impact on learning and social development, mental health and physical health and well-being. Mm. And, and really, as a result, schools K-12 were able to open up earlier and continue to function throughout the pandemic. Um, and uh, so, you know, our, our efforts to limit importation of COVID-19 into PEI and try to contain the cases and limit transmission in the community has been to protect Islanders, but also to support students to continue to have in-class learning with mm -hmm. that K-12 system. Um, and, and also in part in the, in the post-secondary. So I'm actually really proud and grateful that Island youth have been in the in the school um, mm. for the for the for the school year uh, um, in terms of in class learning, we know we've had many youth um, involved in frontline employment as mm. well. So I think it was important that PI took steps to protect uh, these individuals through general public health measures, but also ensure this age group was offered vaccine as early as possible. And PI was among the provinces administering vaccines early on for high-risk populations, uh, age 16 to 39, compared to some of the other ETs. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think in terms of the part of the question regarding the impact of COVID-19 on the lives of youth, uh, on the lives of youth, there's, a, I think, a longer road ahead. <laughs> um, and this goes beyond public health, and I think it will require a real a response, a societal response to ensure the next generation continues to have opportunities and, and look at what the impacts have, have really been. Um, so I think as we transition out of the public health state of emergency, and as we all so, so much wanted to get back to the normal in PEI and elsewhere, that we do uh, focus on addressing the profound impacts that COVID-19 has had on the health, social, and economic well-being of people in PI, and and youth will be important as uh, as part of that lens as we look at those impacts. Um, I also know that uh, the premier's office uh, had set up a youth council um, and and advising uh, the government, and uh, and I think that's been really uh, um, something that's been important, and I know appreciated. Um, not only by the premier, but by all, all of government as a result. So um, I think um, uh, it's been, um, it, and it reminds us the COVID um, early on got to, you know, there were a lot of older people who were getting really sick mm -hmm. and outbreaks in long-term care, but COVID has impacted everybody at all ages. And um, and including youth, and uh, so uh, making sure we we remember everybody 
as part of this response has been really important. Mm-hmm. And, and you bring up a couple of very good points. The first one looks at, you know, the fact that this pandemic might theoretically be getting over now. We're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, but uh, the impact will be felt for a very long time. And whatever changes that happen need to happen consistently over the next few years to make sure that the transition back to life um, as we knew it or to a new normal that's different from the normal of the last year and the normal before that um, <laughs> is very smooth. So I think that was a very good point. Um, but then the second one was specifically looking at youth working in the service industry. Um, now in PEI and in Canada, youth make up a large percentage of staff working with the public, especially in the service industry. Um, on April 20th of this year, uh, the proceedings of the National Academy of Science of the United States of America published dynamic prioritization of COVID-19 vaccines when social distancing is limited for essential workers. Um, This is a study that found that older essential workers are typically targeted first in vaccine rollout plans. Um, However, depending on the objective and alternative model of scenarios uh, considered, younger essential workers may be prioritized in order to control uh, the spread or to directly control uh, mortality rates. Now, as you mentioned in PEI, youth frontline workers age 16 to 39 who interact with the public became eligible to be vaccinated on the week of April 19th uh, with the rest of the cohort between 16 and 29 being eligible for vaccines as from May 10th. Now, still on the topic of youth, do you feel that PEI has adequately prioritized youth in the vaccine rollout, especially when looking at those in frontline positions? Well, I, I actually feel I'm pleased with our vaccine rollout strategy and I'm grateful that you know, in general, island residents have responded so well to the opportunity to be immunized. And as uh, you know, last week we had almost 68% of eligible island residents have had at least one dose and 12% have had two doses. And as of June 9th, um, the age group 12 to 39, 44% have received one dose of vaccine, 7% have received two doses. And and this is the age group that's being immunized uh, even at junior high and at public clinics. And I expect that percentage to increase significantly over the next two or three weeks. Um, and I, and we, we know that every island resident uh, 12 and over who wants to get a chance to be vaccinated will be able to be vaccinated. Now, um, we've balanced it. I mean, going back more directly to your question, I, I think we have, um, try to look at the evidence around who is getting the most sick in terms of severe outcomes, death, hospital, ICU admissions. And we have been able to learn from the rest of the country and around the world. But also, as you mentioned, trying to, um, for instance, as the group of 18 to 29 year olds who we um, highlighted to um, who are working frontline uh, in the food service industry, wanting to make sure that uh, um, we were able to offer them vaccine as early as possible too. So I think we've, we've tried to do a little bit of both um, based on uh, the level of disease that we have here in the province, as well as what we've learned on the, in terms of the evidence around the vaccine. Um, and as a result, I think uh, we're in a very good place. Um, we, we certainly want, the, the goal was to get and to allow as many Islanders as possible to be immunized as quickly as possible. 
but at the same time ensuring that some of the priority groups, both in terms of risk of exposure and those most vulnerable to the virus are immunized first. So, um, and, and we've tried to maintain that throughout the last number of months as our vaccine rollout has gone on. Um, now, so we depend a lot on advice from our, you know, Council of Chief Medical Officers of Health, and NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, um, who look at the um, at the, the the evidence and the science, and really makes those recommendations around priority groups. And uh, PI certainly led the way. I think, as you mentioned, mid-April we expanded that eligibility uh, to individuals who are younger frontline workers interacting with public mm. and who could not work virtually as well as those with underlying medical conditions. Um, and then, you know, and then we've continued to try to move that out. Um, and we're hoping our second doses for everyone um, are going to be uh, occur over the summer. So uh, it's been a mammoth, um, most complicated vaccine rollout the, the world has ever seen and certainly the country and uh, has created challenges along the way because of only so many doses of vaccine coming into the province every week and trying to use that the best we could and trying to limit the importation of COVID at the same time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Now we're going to switch gears, I know, to a, to a topic you get many questions on all the time, Dr. Morrison, many Islanders' favorite topic, the Atlantic bubble. Um, <laughs> uh, I know you've heard this ad nauseum, but, um, you know, back in 2020, uh, when this first opened on July 3rd, I mean, I remember the day it was like, oh, my gosh, the floodgates are open. Um, you know, it was so exciting. And, and I think we were at a place in, in Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, where our, our cases were very low and we were in a really safe position. And, and that's kind of what the decision was based on. Um, and, and similarly, in 2021, we've been talking about this again and, and as well back in the fall, too. Um, and, and what had happened was we were originally going to open back in April, um, but that decision was actually rescinded. Um, and that was due to the, the community spread in, in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick at that time. Obviously, it wasn't safe for anyone to be traveling in and amongst the provinces. Um, and, and now we're back at a situation uh, here in June that, um, knock on wood, will hopefully be reopening uh, later this June. Um, but there's been a different kind of rationale for reopening in June. Um, last year it was based on number of cases, whereas now we're looking at percentage of vaccination rates um, and with the expectation that at least 80% of the population having that first dose. So we have two questions on on this one. The first one was, you know, is this a conscious decision to transition from um, making a decision based on the number of COVID cases versus the percentage of vaccination rate to open the Atlantic bubble? Well, I think I, I'm glad you, you asked because I think for from our perspective, it's both. Mm. So it's not a transition from one to the other. It's actually looking at the rate of disease in the in the region. Um, and, and frankly, in the rest of the country, but also the rate of vaccine. So it's, it's both things together. And I think even if we had, um, you know, great vaccination rate, and yet there was terrible disease, infectious disease pressure and outbreaks everywhere, um, 
uh, we know the vaccine is not 100% effective, so that would be of concern. Um, but uh, we know that um, we'll continue to see cases. I think I said uh, recently that when we opened the Atlantic bubble on July the 3rd, there were five active cases in all four Atlantic problems. So we may not get there again, but we want to make sure that we, uh, one of the things we've talked about throughout the pandemic is trying to make sure that our, we have good health system capacity to look after people if they get sick with COVID, but also to look after other people for other reasons, if you're in a car accident, mm. have a heart attack, and that our system isn't being overwhelmed with COVID. So um, we're trying to make sure people are vaccinated um, so that they don't end up in hospital, um, don't aren't involved in outbreaks. Um, so I think that's important. And we know that one dose plus 21 days will give people a certain level of protection, but two doses is definitely um, better. Mm. And uh, that's why the two doses is important, especially against the variants of concern. Mm. So, um, but if we look at that, Plus, we have decreasing levels of uh, disease and what we call infectious disease pressure. I think we'll be in a good position to open up. And, and frankly, I think open up even earlier than we would have anticipated a month ago mm. um, because the, the numbers uh, in the region and across the country have dropped so dramatically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's a that's a really important clarification. I know for myself and for listeners to make is, you know, it's not whether we're only looking at number of cases or only looking at vaccination rate. Uh, it's of course encompassing kind of kind of both. So that's very good to know. And I guess to jump off of that, um, in the situation in which, for example either PEI or one of our partner provinces did have a, a rapid increase in cases. What does that adaptation of the bubble look like from your folks' perspective? Well, I, I think uh, that is another great uh, question. So I think we um, have talked about that. We've looked at what other places have done and, and how you manage uh, outbreaks um, and whether we do that in terms of controlling some of the outbreaks and the public health measures that are put in place more, uh, more restrictive if there's an outbreak happening here um, versus um, doing anything at, at, uh, the board, at the border or the PI border. So um, we know that uh, we are going to be asking those who are vaccinated um, they won't have to isolate in the same way. And um, those who are not vaccinated will have a shorter period of isolation. So we know that we'll continue to want to do that to try to minimize that mm -hmm. risk of getting sick and also spreading the illness. Um, so, but if we do get an outbreak, um, one of the, the first decisions I think will be where, what, where is it? Um, what has, is it widespread community transmission or is it more you know, contained? Um, and uh, do we need to put certain measures in place to help contain it within um, a section of PEI or in, in one uh, sector? So, um, and we're also looking at updating our whole outbreak management guidance around um, if you're fully vaccinated and have been in contact with someone, reducing that period of isolation, for instance. So that may have less impact on um, 
how people are able to function. Mm. So I, I'm hopeful that we don't have to do that, um, mm. but uh, recognizing that um, there are still some outbreaks happening across the, the country. And, and, and in terms of our public health measures, uh, in Toronto on the weekend, really they got out to eat at a patio for the first time uh, practically, <laughs> and, and they got to hug, hug a grandchild uh, that they hadn't seen. And, you know, in some places are allowing two families to get together. And those, those things we've been doing for so long here mm. that we forget, I mm-hmm. think um, we've, we've uh, been in a different position in terms of reopening as uh, a starting point, but uh, I'm hopeful if we reopen carefully that uh, we'll never have to go back the other direction. But if we do, um, we'll respond quickly. And uh, and that's what has put us in a good position all the way. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Absolutely. And there's a lot of things I think that we've been taking over the last few weeks like I can't I, I think we've been on patios or Emma and I just a few times already um, you know being able to have a group of friends that are actually able to meet and hug on a regular basis is not something I take for granted anymore mm-hmm. uh, but you know segueing into a different topic as well is what we've been hearing a lot throughout this pandemic is that we're all in the same storm. We're not all necessarily in the same boat. Uh, some people are on, a, on cruise ships and some people only have a lifeboat. So very different situations there. Um, and we've seen, you know, within PEI and across Canada, that folks in minimum wage jobs especially have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. Um, and typically these are folks, these are employees who can't afford to miss a shift or worry about employer repercussions should they take a day off to get tested or you know to uh, self-isolate. In addition, you know, all of these frontline positions are deemed essential and stay operational even when lockdowns so or stricter restrictions are imposed, looking at, for instance, grocery stores or you know, other frontline positions. After months of advocacy by different unions, we've seen in Ontario on April 29th that the government amended the Employment Standards Act to require employers to provide employees with up to three days of paid infectious disease emergency leave because of certain reasons related to COVID-19. From a public health perspective, what impact do you think paid sick leave would have had on the cases that we've had thus far? And is this a measure that would prove to be effective in cases of future health crisis? Well, I guess um, I, I think it's a, a very interesting one. And some of it is pushing me out of the normal public health um, uh, boundaries of the Public Health Act. But uh, I mean, I guess I, I, I thought I'll make a few comments. Um, I think, you know, as I think everyone is aware, we people in PEI after they've worked for three months, I believe, are entitled to the three unpaid sick leave, uh, sick days. Um, and then, and then it's more after they've been working somewhere for a period of time. And, um, and when you look across the country, there are, uh, a range of approaches to the sick leave. And um, in the majority of provinces, uh, sick leave is unpaid and typically ranges, I believe, from three to seven days per year. And I know there's others who are more expert in, in this area. 
Um, I understand, as you sort of indicated, there's going to be a comprehensive review of the Employment Standards Act uh, that will uh, start. And, um, and I think that paid sick leave will be an issue that will be raised and debated during this review. And, and mm -hmm. I think that will be really important on the, on the heels of this uh, pandemic. Mm. So as a public health physician, I'm supportive of policy measures to improve equity amongst mm. its citizens. So, and paid sick leave is an important policy tool to ease the burden of becoming sick or having to isolate to protect the health of others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now, over 70% of cases in COVID-19 PI are related to travel, both domestic and international. Mm. And we haven't had big outbreaks in workplaces, you know, large ones. Um, so paid sick leave does help ease the financial burden of illness and or isolation on individuals and their families. And in the case of COVID-19, positive cases and their close contacts have to self-isolate, you know, throughout the pandemic, it's been 14 days. And this has created real financial hardship for uh, some individuals and, and families. Um, so I, I, but I do know there've been situations where employers have assisted employees in self-isolation by providing partial compensation. Um, and even though in some cases uh, businesses were closed, I, I'm certainly aware of research that supports paid sick leave as being beneficial in helping to reduce transmission of infectious diseases in workplaces. Mm -hmm. And so, those, I guess, are a few of my comments that I think that hopefully at least touch on your question. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And and I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, as you have been in, in the entirety of this episode, that um, with the upcoming um, opportunity for debate on on the amendments to the existing legislation, that there there will for sure, I think, like you said, on the heels of a pandemic, there's going to be that uh, that drive or the interest to look further into paid sick days. So we'll also look into that uh, when it comes up. Um, on the last kind of COVID-specific question we have for you here, Dr. Morrison, um, one thing that you mentioned at the start of the episode that I think is, is really important to this is people are really looking forward to the end of this. You know, people have been very tired um, and have been very frustrated with COVID-19 um, on Prince of Rhode Island, in Canada, everywhere. Um, however, there have been some people who have communicated this, you know, tired and frustration through blame and, and specifically looking to blame others um, from a specific race or a specific uh, background. We know, of course, this is absolutely discriminatory and is not tolerated. Um, but in your role as the chief public health officer, um, what do you say to those individuals who are looking to blame others, you know, specifically based on their race for COVID-19? I mean, I think you've heard me uh, say right throughout uh, this pandemic, uh, be patient, be kind, we're in this together. And, um, and, I, and I, I know that um, it doesn't reach it, always the ears of the people, um, but it, it reminds us all, I, I hope, um, 
and uh, to do so. Um, I think COVID-19 doesn't discriminate in who, it, you know, it, it can affect anybody and the impacts have affected everybody. And so I, I find the, that people blaming others is, um, is so it's frustrating, it's difficult to understand, it's not acceptable, and um, it, it doesn't, uh, and, and I think, um, you know, in the end of it, I think we can do better. And I, and I agree, I think um, there's uh, no place for um, discrimination um, when we are um, trying to protect the health of everybody. And uh, so I, um, I think uh, in that we, we continue to be patient, continue to be kind and, and uh, try to work together. And, uh, and I know that uh, that has been more challenging for some than others. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, and thank you so much for these positive comments. Um, now we have one last open-ended question for you. And I think this is probably the trickiest one to answer. Um, typically after public health, uh, after public health briefings we find on Tuesdays uh, or Thursdays or back in the fall when it used to be every day, you know, folks would of course be talking about the cases, about the new updates, but there was also always one topic that's always trending on Twitter and it is, is what is Dr. Heather Morrison wearing today? So our last open-ended question is the universal one that I think everyone on PEI wants to know is, what inspires your fabulous sense of style? Uh, I, I, I actually, when I saw that, that question, I just started to, to laugh a little bit because I think um, I, I'll have to tell my children uh, that I can ask that question. <laughs> uh, sometimes I come out in the morning and I'll I'll hold one thing up or the other, and uh, they'll be like, "Oh, oh no, yeah, you know they they, they sometimes give me an opinion." Or and and uh, one of my children said to me the other day, they said, "Well." What kind of message is it today? Are you giving good news or bad news? And so, well, it's just sort of the same. <laughs> and so, so sometimes they 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 pick they help me you know pick colors uh, based on what they think the the message um, will be. And uh, so, um, I uh, I'm not I don't follow uh, social media. I'm not on social media, and and that's probably wise for for many uh reasons but um i think uh, i uh, i don't know what inspires me but uh, but maybe it's uh, it's uh, that i uh, um, i'm at least comfortable with what i have on it there and it makes me less nervous because i'm usually so nervous when i go out to those press conferences every day mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, I don't think anyone in the whole world would question your, your nervousness for a second. I always feel like you come in and you're ready to essentially to kick butt and take names and just like, you know, okay, this is the usual, you know, 40,000 questions, I'm ready. Like, and so uh, I, I think many Islanders uh, trust your level of confidence and, and expertise. So don't worry about that for a second. <laughs> oh, thank you. 
All right. So the next section of the podcast is a new section. Now, um, this is going to be a set of, I think there's eight rapid fire questions. Um, and it will be a question. Um, and for example, um, maybe an idea could be your favorite type of cereal. That's not one of them. We wouldn't okay. give you these ahead of time. These are these are very much so on the okay. spot, but then you would answer as, as quickly and as confidently as you can, maybe what your favorite cereal <laughs> is. And and the idea about this section was, um, as, as we mentioned at the start, you know, so many folks tune into your uh, briefings as well as um, interviews that you do and, and really see you all the time over the last 15 months, but haven't really gotten to know anything outside of the, the chief public health side of things. So this is an opportunity to, to get to know you in, in a bit more of a goofier <laughs> way, I would say. <laughs> Perfect. So if you're ready, um, I'll kick things off. So Dr. Morris, according to you, is the best PEI ice cream? Um, cow's ice cream. Okay. What's your favorite beach? Um, Brander's Pond Beach. In <laughs> what is your favorite way to eat PEI potatoes? Um... French fries. Mm. What is your favorite artist or band? Um, well, from a painting, like a five, a painting artist, um, I'm going to say Emily Howard, mm -hmm. uh, who's an island artist. Um, are you a tea person or a coffee person? You know, my caffeine, I usually get from a Diet Coke, believe it or not, if I have to. <laughs> Very cool. Mm -hmm. Okay, and do you prefer mornings, evenings? Do I uh, mornings? And do you prefer summer or winter? Summer. <laughs> and do you prefer strawberries or blueberries? Strawberries. Okay. And this wraps up our rapid fire questions. Uh, I feel like this had you more on edge than the actual questions we have. <laughs> earlier <laughs> so, so I, I i just sorry i just missed the last question what was it uh, we're just saying uh you seemed more nervous about this part than the previous absolutely I, I was like i didn't know i was coming okay <laughs> uh, I, um, no and so uh, what was the last uh, what was my favorite beer we haven't gone on to that oh, part okay yet, <laughs> But um, yes, yeah, so our next segment, which is kind of a bit of a fan requested fan favorite is our beer panel. Uh, typically, this started off as everyone just making beer recommendations, but over the last few months has really taken on life of its own with folks recommending anything from recipes to restaurants to their favorite ice cream. So Dr. Morrison, as our special guest, would like to invite you to go first. Is there anything you'd like to recommend to our listeners today? Well, um, I haven't really been out to a restaurant in 15 months, so I can hardly wait to go to any restaurant to eat in. Um, and uh, so I'm very excited to, to start doing that again. I would, um, I, don't, I don't know, I think 
picking up some oysters and being and having them shucked fresh on and sitting on a patio somewhere is probably uh, something that I enjoy and it doesn't have to be at a restaurant it could be right in your backyard uh, so that uh, would be a recommendation um, if anyone hasn't uh, tried that um, I had a great dessert the other day that was actually made with a whole bunch of ice cream sandwiches layered with whipped cream. And I hadn't tried that before. And it was easy to make and the children loved it. Mm. Wow. Both those sound very delicious right now. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Emma, would you like to go next? Yeah, I'll go next. my recommendation is going to be a, a beer for today, and I'm going to recommend a Stella Artois. Now, this is a Belgian beer. It's a Pilsner. Um, it's not one of my favorites. Uh, admittedly, it's it's really not, and um, honestly, it's nothing to write home about, but the reason why I'd like to recommend a Stella Artois is because on Saturday, um, Belgium had their first game in the Euro Cup, and they faced off against Russia um, in I had the the pleasant opportunity of watching the game from the local restaurant Churchill Arms and of course in support for my team Belgium I had to have a Belgian beer and of course the only one that they had which is found I would say across the world uh, and probably the most well-known Belgian beer is Estella Artois so um, I'll recommend that for today very light very easy going and uh, a good way to support uh, Belgium. Well I, I I'm gonna jump in and say that my, some of my family watched that game because um, they have Belgian connections and they were very excited. And there was definitely, uh, there's always going to be a Belgian beer in, in, uh, in the house somewhere. Oh, right on. I, I love to hear that. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> well, first of all, I mean, they're the best team in the whole world. So Sweat, I know, would debate with this. So it's it's great to hear the, the further support. And um, they also have the best beer in the world. So there's definitely loads, loads of options there. So um, <laughs> that just made my day. <laughs> okay, I, I will disagree on the Belgian soccer team, but that's okay. Uh, I think when I think of summer, I typically think of Victoria Park and, you know, just walking down the boardwalk for a few hours, a few times a week. So I think my beer recommendation today is a Vic Park, just classic from a PI Brewing Company, and it's just really good. Uh, but also, I had the chance to go to the Preserve Company in New Glasgow this past weekend and got a whole raspberry pie from there. And it's just so delicious with like a thin layer of cream cheese. And then you had the raspberry jam on top and a very nice flaky crust. And it was just delicious. It made my Saturday night and it pairs really well with ice cream. So if anyone's driving by New Glasgow, I would recommend the raspberry pie. That sounds delicious too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this brings us to the end of our formal interview. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Morrison. I think um, I speak for both of us when I say this is the most excited both of us have been uh, for a while. And we're just really, really pleased to have had the opportunity to talk to you today. It's been a pleasure. Uh, Thank you for the questions. Uh, Thank you for your time. And uh, I I really have to say I've enjoyed this uh, interview more than 
more than most. So thank you. <laughs> well, we're glad to hear it. And thank you for dedicating some time out of your busy schedule for us today. Thank you so much. It was lovely to chat with you. It's lovely. Have a good day. Bye-bye. A big thank you again to Dr. Morrison for dedicating an hour of your time to discuss with us. We're grateful for not only your time, but continued leadership in Prince Edward Island. In related good news, as of June 15, PEI officially has zero active cases for the first time since fall 2020, and this is an achievement we'd like to celebrate. Our opening and closing music is always from the talented Mr. Shane Pendergast, and he will be playing each Sunday in June, 1 to 4 p.m. at Lone Oak Brewery up at Borden-Carrollton. As always, we're hoping you're getting your vaccines, staying warm, staying dry, and staying safe. This has been Dialogue.